You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. In this week's edition, how does the ethnic makeup of the area you live in affect your mental health? There's been a lot of theoretical work um, where people have suggested that perhaps um, ethnic minority groups who live in areas of higher own group density um, in general experience less discrimination, less racism and maybe even have better um, social support or access to wider social networks which might mitigate against uh, mental health problems. And hyper-hypo, the troublesome prefix. It's really an auditory problem rather than a visual problem. I mean, they look different, but it's when the spoken word is said is that there is such minimal difference. But before all that, I'm joined by David Payne, who's here with his pick of what's online on bmj.com this week. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So what have you got for us? I've just got a couple of um, stories this week. The first one, I suppose, is the story of the century, it feels like. It was the rescue of the Chilean miners last week, and um, everyone else seems to be covering it. We thought we'd get in on the act too, so we commissioned Glasgow GP Margaret McCartney, who's also a journalist, to write a Medicine and the Media article for us. And it's very interesting, really, because um, obviously in these days of 24-hour news outlets and uh, the pressure to sort of fill the airwaves, doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists get trotted out to give their speculation about, you know, what state the miners are going to be in when they come out. I think She's done a really interesting article about coverage and the, the volume of reporters that the BBC sent there. And, you know, she does make the point that there is this Cochrane review that was done that actually showed that, you know, immediate counselling after trauma can actually worsen rather than improve outcomes. She talks in her article about, you know, whether any of the people that were picked on to quote about that actually sort of mentioned that. Uh, I think there was one lecturer in psychiatry, Christopher Finlay, who actually told the BBC that and that really there's very little substitute for talking to informally to peers and family. Sure. The other thing that's interesting about the article was um, this sense that it's quite, it sounds quite sinister, actually, the way that the, when the men were underground that they were almost given rewards for sort of responding psychologically for cigarettes and things like that. And, um, you know, they were declined things if they sort of didn't play ball, really. But uh, I do recommend that you read Margaret's article. Certainly our listeners should to get more of a take on what she was talking about. It's very good. Yeah. And we're sticking with uh, medicine in the media, as it were, for our next story. Yes, a blog by Neil Graham, who's a final year medical student at University College London Medical School, caught my eye. Um, this went online at the end of last week. And um, uh, Neil's really sort of saying that um, it's a shame that when you see the reporting of a, of a study in the mainstream media, that there isn't an obvious link to the actual paper. And um, he's very animated about that and says that actually it's doing readers a disservice. I've noticed it too, actually. You often see stories saying, you know, scientists at Harvard Medical school they don't mention the journal they don't mention the study type which I can understand for a sort of consumer audience but um, it would be nicer Neil says if actually they did a link um, certainly these days of tiny URLs to the study so that people can make an informed choice and see whether the headline's accurate. And Ben Goldick has been campaigning on that as well so maybe we'll see uh, something in the future. Yes definitely. Right great thanks David. Thank you. Now I'm joined in the studio by Jati Dasmunchi an MRC Fellow from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. She and her colleagues have been looking at the effects of ethnic density on mental health and they've published this week in the BMJ. Jatty, this is a really interesting question. Are you the first to look at it? Um, No, not at all. There's uh, a growing body of evidence, I think, which has suggested that there may be health protective benefits for ethnic minority people living in areas of higher own group density. But I think much of the previous work has tended to just report the association but hasn't really uh, managed to unpack why or how this association Mm. might be operating. 
And um, there's been a lot of theoretical work um, where people have suggested that perhaps um, ethnic minority groups who live in areas of higher own group density um, in general experience less discrimination, less racism and maybe even have better um, social support or access to wider social networks which might mitigate against uh, mental health problems. Sure. So we just in our study decided to bring all of these themes together to see if um, there might be an association of living in areas of higher own group density that was associated with better social support and improved um, and reporting less discrimination which might then uh, account for better mental health. Yeah. Um, You've looked here at uh, a few ethnic groups and we'll go into that in a second. Where did you get your data from? Well, the analysis was performed on a um, nationally representative survey, which was um, a follow-on of a previous health survey for England. Um, So the survey was called the Ethnic Minorities, Psychiatric Illness Rates in the Community Survey. Um, And as the name suggests, it was designed to try and understand mental health um, amongst ethnic minority groups living in England in at that time, which was in 2000. Um, you know, the, cave- the main caveat being that this survey was performed 10 years previously. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the migration has changed, or that the landscape of migration has changed over the last 10 years. So it might, things may have changed um, if, we were to, if we were to repeat the survey today. Sure. I mean, uh, just to go into that, the, the groups that you were looking at here were Irish, Black Caribbean, uh, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and white British. And that doesn't seem to be, you know, particularly discriminatory. There's uh, Eastern European people represented. Um, the whole of Africa is kind of missing from yes, there. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a limitation, really, of of the the study that we were constrained by the ethnic minority groups who were sampled at that time. So we could only really really speak about the groups who were surveyed. Sure. In terms of those groups, they were you know, self-identifying as being in this group when they received the um, the questionnaire. So did you manage to get any data about you know, how long people had been here or if they were first, second, third, whatever generation? Um, no, absolutely. So ethnicity was determined by um, asking people to identify which ethnic minority group they belonged to. So there would have been a proportion of people who would have, say, identified themselves as Indian but were born in Britain. We, we did have that information, but we had... We, in, the, in this particular analysis, we didn't specifically look at it. I think the difficulty being, um, although it was a, it was a good survey in terms of um, the representation of all of the ethnic minority groups, um, if one starts to try and break the groups down even further, then the numbers become smaller, and so it might look like there isn't an association when there is. So we sort of refrained from doing that, but it might be work that can be done in in the future. Sure. So what you went and did was you you interviewed these people, try and find out experiences that they had, find out any common mental disorders which they may have had. So once you did that, once you combined the data, what did you find? Well, um, the analysis looked at individuals essentially nested within areas. Um, I think one of the main findings was that really across all of the groups there was a tendency for a reduction in screening positive for common mental disorders with increasing own group density. Um, but those associations were most marked for the Irish group and the Bangladeshi group, as well as the total ethnic minority sample as a whole. 
we also found that for some of the groups, um, living in areas of higher own group density did appear to be associated with a reduction in the reporting of discrimination and racism, as well as improved social support and networks for some of the groups. But at times the associations weren't always in the direction that we expected. So mm. I think there's more work that needs to be done around that. Sure. And then in the final part of our analysis, we sought to determine if racism and social support might mediate or account for these overall um, area level effects. And what we found was that um, they didn't appear to fully account for uh, the area level density effects of mental health. So that, that led us to conclude that there might be other factors at play which we weren't fully able to examine within the data set. Sure. And, you know, everyone can go and read more about your, your results yeah. in the paper there. Um, whenever you're doing this kind of research, mm. you know, it's really hard to to take out potential confounding factors. Yeah. You know, a link between socioeconomic situation and, and ethnicity and mental health. And, you know, there's there's a lot in there. So how did you try and kind of unpick those? No, no absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that question. Certainly in, in, the, in the case of our study, I mean, it was clear that ethnically dense areas also tended to be more deprived. And so it's a real concern that um, if you don't adjust for this um, sufficiently, then you might mask or minimise effects which you might have otherwise seen. What I, what I should stress is that's not to really take away from the importance of um, disadvantage in patterning the mental health outcomes of ethnic minority groups, but it's just that within the models we had to adjust for this in order to be able to uncover the effect. Mm. Um, we used a number of measures to assess for socioeconomic position. At the area level, we used a measure known as the index of multiple deprivation, which assesses deprivation along a number of domains of disadvantage mm -hmm. and brings them together at the area level. And at the individual level, we used education and we also used um, occupational social class according to the Registrar-General system. And there has been a bit of work suggesting that uh, Registrar-General social class isn't adequate for capturing um, adequately so socioeconomic position amongst ethnic minority groups living in Britain. So there is a concern that although we had this information, it might not have been enough. And mm. so this might be why, for some of the groups, uh, the effects weren't as marked um, as they might have been. Sure. But having said that, we did find quite large effects and quite strong evidence, in fact, for the Bangladeshi group and for the Irish group. Yes, yes. Was there anything else that you would maybe have liked to uh, adjust your model for that you weren't able to look at? Well, I think something that um, I think would be a very interesting future line of inquiry is to really look at group level social cohesion or social capital and we couldn't really look at that within our data set and I think that's something that could perhaps potentially be done in the future and it's been suggested I mean the other sort of line of theoretical work has suggested that perhaps um, areas which are higher in own group density are also richer in forms of both bonding and bridging social capital so what, what, what by that I mean the, the sort of links that people have both within the group as well as outside of the group but we couldn't really um, look at that which is an unfor unfortunate limitation of um, the data that we had. Yeah so just the nature of this kind of study. Absolutely though, isn't it? yeah. It's kind of hard to, to know what conclusions to draw from that, isn't it? Absolutely. I think I think the the work our work should be seen in the context of a growing body of um, evidence which uh, implicates the residential or neighbourhood context of where people live 
in terms of patterning their health. Mm. And I think the other, I mean, by that token, I think the research also um, keys into quite a large body of literature around mental health and the sort of social causation of mental health. And I think what our findings suggest is that there might be very important social processes at play that might account for mental health um, amongst ethnic minority groups. I, I think it'd probably be a bit too early to say to make conclusions, and so we'd probably need more work, really, to be able to work out what's, what's going on. Sure. And if that's piqued your interest, Giatti's paper is available for free on bmj.com. Next, hyper-hypo. Very useful terms in medicine, but using these Greek prefixes can lead to trouble. Say them quickly, hypothermic, hypothermic, hyperglycemic, hyperglycemic, and it's easy to mistake one for the other. That's what happened in a busy intensive care unit one morning. A patient had high blood pressure, requiring immediate attention. The doctor mentioned to the nurse that the patient was hypertensive and gave an order for the appropriate medication. The nurse heard hypotensive. She then misinterpreted which drug to use and administered it, exacerbating an already dangerous problem. That incident spurred Adam Frankel and Philip Vecchio, both from the medication safety team at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Mulongaba in Australia, to write a personal view which appears in this week's journal. Adam, we'll start with you. Is that incident, which you describe in your personal view, a one-off, or is it just a, a single example of a frequent problem? It's a frequent problem that we see. We review a lot of incidents each month of medication errors, and it's a, a recurring theme to have hyper and hypo uh, as the, the root cause of, of confusion, and from there downstream uh, errors are made. Okay, Philip, what do you hope to achieve with this? Well, the fact that there was an incident and that we realised that we all had anecdotes of where these two terms were confused, and so we thought, well, how do we get this changed? We have to get people to be aware of it and start thinking differently about concepts, which sometimes shakes the foundation upon which medicine is built upon, which is terminology. And because terminology from ancient languages, including Latin, Greek, and etc., may be difficult, particularly when you have people without English as their first language with pronunciation variations, etc., we thought, well, the only way is to get rid of these terms and make them simple English terms. It's really an auditory problem rather than a visual problem. I mean, they look different written, and I don't think people would confuse, for instance, these terms but it's when the spoken word is said is that there is such minimal difference. Yeah. So high and low are very easy to distinguish both written and auditory, whereas hyper and hypo aren't. As Philip said, these terms are well established. They're ancient even. Um, they're also useful. They're four-letter words that mean something much longer, either greater than the average or less than the average. So you're going to have some resistance to change. Absolutely essential, of course, to have antonyms in the language, um, but it's somewhat ridiculous having antonyms that sound so close together, uh, particularly uh, the spoken word. I'm sure that, um, that the readers will appreciate, too, that these prefixes are used with the concepts of critical body measurements, uh, blood pressure with the suffix tension, blood sugar with the suffix glycemia, 
all the electrolyte measurements and so on, all, all the critical measurements seem to get prefixed by hypo and hyper. So they're, they're, not, um, they're not insignificant problems that can occur as a result of confusion of those two terms. Hyper and hypo aren't the only sound-like antonyms in medicine. You've also got endo, exo, super, supra, micro, micro. Have you seen any problems with any others? Well, I think hyper and hypo really stand out, but of course there's other similar sound-alike antonyms, uh, ab and ad, so ab and ad duction are are similar, and as a surgical registrar, that's uh, of particular importance to me. Uh, However, there's less potential harm from confusing those two uh, than when you talk about hypo and hyper, I think. Okay. So, Philip, how successful have you been in making the change in your hospital? Well, this this has been very, very recent, Duncan. And, in fact, we regard the initial success was being published in uh, the BMJ. So we intend to to make some moves on this with respect to presenting it in medical fora. We call them grand rounds, so do you. So in, say, in the local hospital and see what takes from there because we think, that getting a change is a very difficult concept, one where there will be a lot of resistance and multiple excuses raised. So I think firstly gaining acceptance is to see, well, is to tell people about the harm that could be done by just following on the old world stuff. And finally, Adam, uh, after you conquer your hospital, what's next? I think we'd probably get better value out of trying to initiate change amongst medical students. It's going to be very difficult, I think, to to change established habits in senior clinicians who have practised for most of their lives using such terms, and and that's quite understandable. But I think it's very easy to initiate changes in medical students who don't have established habits. Every language evolves with time, um, and this is just one example of of an evolutionary uh, step that we think needs taking. So, hyper, hypo. Not a complex problem to fix, but one that will take time and energy to overcome the inertia in the medical fraternity. As Adam and Philip said off mic, if we aren't willing to make such changes, there seems little point in having committees or teams like theirs. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week looking at China's new rural cooperative medical scheme. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.